you're going to say. And uh, we, are, um, we are transitioning a little bit to a new sport, which we haven't been talking about too much over the last few months because it's kind of the down season for tennis. But the French Open... Um, tournament is coming up, so that gives us um, some interest to think about uh, what's happening there in tennis. And to lead us through those conversations, we have Craig uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy, who is widely recognized as a world leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy, and uh, that should be an interesting topic. He is a strategy analyst for the ATP Tour, Wimbledon, the Australian Open, Team Djokovic, and the New York Times, and he's also the founder of Brain Game Tennis. And you can follow him on Twitter at Brain Game Tennis. So, Craig, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Gentlemen, good morning. It's great to be talking with you again, talking stats, talking tennis. And um, I, I always enjoy coming on your show. Great. Where are you calling, uh, calling us from, Craig? Well, this morning, Austin, Texas. Uh, a few days ago, it was Rome, uh, there for the... The right. Masters 1000, and on Friday I go back to Paris. So back home for five days and, and um, spend time with the family and spend time in Austin and then back to Europe. So I feel like I commute to Europe at this time of year. Excellent. So let's. We want to. What immediately caught our eye about your your little short bio there is what does it mean to be a strategy analyst, particularly for, say, Team Djokovic? Yeah, so tennis looks like a game of pinball. You know, sometimes. Players are going down the line, sometimes cross-court, a ball comes to the middle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a guy hits a forehand on the exact same ball, he hits a backhand on the next shot. Um, the pinball effect is an illusion. Tennis is a game of repeatable patterns, and you have four elements to a point, serving, returning, rallying, and approaching the net. And in each of those, you have higher percentage patterns of play. Is it better to serve out wide in the juice court? Is it better to serve down the tee? And you're looking at how many times am I likely to make it and what is my win percentages? So that's what I focus on. And it really just comes from the time coaching on tour, recording the players' matches with a camcorder I hung at the back of the court, analyzing it in Dartfish software and breaking it down by patterns of play. So typically when we look at a match, we look at it chronologically from start to finish, which is exactly the worst way to look at something you want to look at it by patterns let's have a look at all the first serves out wide how many did you make what was your win percentage where did the ball come back in play did you hit a forehand or backhand what area of the court did you initially attack so that's what i do i I break it down into these patterns um i look at the percentages to figure out which ones are better than the others and and i teach that And, and novak is somebody i've worked with for over two years and we have a great relationship. Marion Vider is also the head coach, and I advise both of those guys on what Novak does well so he understands those patterns and also how to best match up against opponents. So, Craig, this is Eric Bradlow. It's great to have you back on the show. As you okay. may remember, I'm the, I'm the big tennis guy on our yes, show. I, I love the sport of tennis. I watch every tournament, every okay. tournament, um, <laughs> and so uh, not as much tennis as you see, but... Let me ask you a question. One of the things we as statisticians talk about is uncertainty, unpredictability as an advantage for a player. So we just obviously had the finals the other day between uh, Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic. How much does Nadal or Djokovic 
play to their patterns. Or in some sense, you know, it's kind of like the Princess right. Bride. If I know that you know that I know, <laughs> so yeah. they all have they all have strategy analysts and statisticians, if you yeah. like, saying Novak hits this way, Nadal hits this way. Is it ever? This is my question to you, both as a teacher and as a strategy analyst. You know what Novak and Rafa are best at, but sometimes maybe is it worth playing your second best just to mix it up so they can't predict exactly? Yeah, so the way that that breaks down, you put every pattern into two areas. You have primary patterns that you're going to run seven to eight times out of ten. Those are your higher percentage patterns. Those are what match with your game style really well. Um, Then you have secondary patterns that you run two or three times out of ten, such as drop shots. Um, now, you know, Novak hit 12 drop shots in that Rome final, but that Rome final was a different animal. You've got, you know, Novak coming through with night matches, long three setters against Del Potro, long three setters against Schwartzman. I, I think the player that plays it, so they put one semi at 4 p.m. and the other semi at 9 p.m. And I think for eight straight years, the player that played at 4 p.m. has won the tournament because playing so late, Again and again. Once you once you start on the late schedule, you stay on the late schedule. You don't, you know, you don't switch back and forth. So um, Novak had a tough one there. The two semis were, were draining. Playing at night is tough. Coming back in the day is tough. Playing the Dow on his favourite surface at sea level, which is a big deal. Is but tough. why is so, it um, why is it a big deal to for him to play at sea level? Speed of court, speed speed through the air and the speed of court. So with City Pass beat Nadal in Madrid, which is, you know, a relative altitude there. Um, great win, one of the best wins of his career. Then he backs up and plays him in Rome and gets defeated. The first thing he said when he came off the court in an interview was, you know, what is it, you know, what is it like to play Rafa here versus Madrid? Why did you win? By Why did you lose? The first thing he said is that when I hit the ball in Rome, it doesn't do nearly as much. It's not as fast through the air. The court is a little bit slower in Rome. The air is slower in Rome. So balls that would either be a winner or he would put massive pressure on Rafa through time or court position in, in Madrid, that exact same ball is not hurting Rafa um, nearly as much in Rome. So you, you certainly, to beat Rafa in Rome, you uh, certainly for Tsitsipas is, is definitely to dip into the secondary tactics, which are... I'm going to serve and volley a little bit more. I'm going to hold the baseline a little bit more. I'm going to attack the net a little bit more and take it away from that traditional higher, longer, deeper in the court baseline rally against Nadal because he's just so incredibly good. And he found his form. Not so good in Monte Carlo, not so good in Barcelona, not so good in um, in Madrid, you know, semifinals all round. And then he found his form and he found his forehand. And that, that those little nuances in the game um, got wrapped of the title in Rome this year. So this this uh, really intriguing talk of kind of primary versus secondary patterns for every player has got me, you know, my the analogy that immediately sprung to my mind is, you know, in baseball, pitchers have kind of their primary pitch, and then they've got secondary yeah. pitches to keep the, the the batters guessing. But of course, in baseball, they've got a catcher and a coach kind of coaching them kind of pitch by pitch through that process. How much is there sort of in-game coaching? Uh, you know, how much is in-game coaching kind of 
changing the adapting the patterns of of, of Nadal and, and Djokovic during a match based on what's already happened. Why well, isn't it illegal to coach in in during during the match? Isn't that well? It, yes, it is. Yes, it is illegal. Um, on the women's tour, you can have the coach come out at, at select times. Um, on the men's tour, it, it's a no. You are not allowed to do it. But you know, I sat on the side of the court for several matches in Rome and. You know, it's just one of those things where you've got so much on the line and whether it's ranking points and, and career direction, um, you know, it, it's just a, a part of our sport that coaches are going to infuse themselves just a little bit, just enough. You know, it could be a word here. It could be a nod there. It could be a push of the hands here. Um, it happens all the time. And. You know, there's sort of this code in tennis where the, you know the umpire is going to look at it, and if it's not too overt, if it's if it's, if mm-hmm. it's not, you know, the, the guy standing up and pointing or yelling out obvious words, um, you know, it, it, it's done and it's subtle and it's below the radar. Um, but you know, officially, if if the umpire looks at the the coach and says, "Hey, that's a little too much," um, he can give a warning, which you know, as we saw happen in the U.S. Open final with Serena. But you're not allowed to do it. But what happens where the players get the keys for whether you dip into primary or secondary is the point score. So it's essentially everything breaks down to do I really need this point or do I not really need this point? So at three all, 30 all, the player really needs that point. So you are going to expect them to go to their primary patterns. Um, you know, for, for some players, it's serving out wide in the juice court. So you'll sit on that a little bit more. Now, in that situation, if the server elects to go down the tee, then sometimes you say, okay, maybe he outsmarted me in this situation. But the other element is, oh, he's going to his secondary pattern on the big point, which is not good for him, which is showing he's either panicking or he's rolling the dice or he feels that he needs to dip into these lower percentage patterns to stay with you. So sometimes it's a real positive if you see a secondary pattern in a big point because it shows the player, you know, is a little bit nervous out there or having to, to pressure too much and go away from what they want to do. Let me let me interrupt by asking a, one, I think, important question that relates to an earlier question we asked our, of our, our guest. Is there any experimentation do you do with the players in asking them to try to try on different strategies? And if there is any experimentation, when would you do it? You do it more when the scoreboard doesn't pressure you. So at 40 love and love 40, those are the obvious ones. You know, at 40 love, you're about a 98 to 99% chance of winning the game. At 40 15, you're still 92%. So it doesn't really matter. It's, it's a little bit of a throwaway point there. So if you are going to experiment, you know, let's call it the serve and volley play. You know, I remember Martina Hingis, you know, if she got a 40 love in a game and there wasn't a lot of serve and volley in women's tennis. But Martina regularly would serve and volley at 40 love to throw a different pattern of play in there, to confuse the opponent. And you're hoping that the opponent doesn't attach the, the, the secondary strategy with the scoreline. So it's like, okay, they served and volleyed. I don't remember whether it was a 40 love or 30 all when they really needed a point. So point scoring a game is going to affect that a lot. So, Craig, this is Eric Bradlow again. One of the stats we love talking about in all sports is how many players do you have to go down for, let's say at the moment, for there to be 50% of the odds? In other words, if I give you a certain number of players, I'll take the rest of the field. So let's take the French Open, 128. How many players would you need to take 
let's say, where you feel comfortable, you have a 50% chance. Is it just two? Like Nadal and Djokovic, and you'll give me the other 126 uh, players? Uh, maybe even just one. Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it would be. Maybe it's just Nadal. Yeah. How, how, how much, like, for example... In recent tournaments, theme has played team has played particularly well. Tsitsipas has played particularly well. Obviously, Federer is a threat on any day conceptually against anybody. Even though he's got a, he had a slight injury in Rome, how many players do you have to take to feel confident that you'd be at fifty percent? One. So Nadal, huh? Yeah, it, it's almost always one. Um, you know, for this tournament, you know, I remember th- this conversation I had. I was in Toronto. Um, coaching Kevin Anderson at the time, I met a guy there who, you know, is a tennis nut, and he said, you know, are you going to be at the U.S. Open? And and I said, yes, I'll be. He's like, well, I'm going to be there too. Let's have a bet, you know, a, a casual, friendly bet on who's going to win the tournament. And I said, I'll take Nadal, and you take everybody else. And and my premonition was that Rafa did an interview in Toronto, and they said, you know how well do you think you're going to do at the U.S. Open? And he was very specific and very determined and said, you know, I'm setting my goals. I'm setting my hardcore season. My focus is squarely on the U.S. Open. And that's all. He was already in good form. But as soon as I heard that, I'm like, this guy is is narrowed down his focus and that's his goal. And I'm all in with that. So a lot of times, you know, the Australian Open this year, obviously Novak. Novak's your one guy. Um, at right. Roland Garros this year, certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, you would take Nadal. Now, if you take two and go with Novak and Rafa, you, you've got a fantastic chance. Right. The other guys, yes, team has done well. Yes, he's, he's a very good clay court player. But Roland Garros is a different animal. It's a different stage. That hard court there bounces so much, and it gives such an advantage to Rafa. So... You know, you better be on your game, and he better be off his game, and he better have been tested throughout the tournament. He better have gone five sets and, you know, have some doubt about his game. Certainly he had doubt in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. That doubt seems to have gone. So, let me just follow this up, because Nadal is uh, actually over 50% under the betting line easily. Um, but you said this, in, let's just broaden it. Would you say this is true specifically about the French, which Nadal has dominated? I, w- I would argue it's got to be certainly only one for that. For the U.S. Open in Wim- Wimbledon, would you also say it's one, or is that typically the case, or is it a couple? No, yeah, it'd be a couple at, at those events. Yeah. You know, right now for Wimbledon, goodness, I mean, Rafa is, is certainly, um, you, you know, a, a favorite there. Novak is certainly a favorite there. And you get some of those bigger servers. Kevin Anderson's been out the entire spring uh, with an injury. John Isner's been out with an injury. So, you know, you, you've got to do well. You don't just go to a slam and go, I've been, on, I've been in Bermuda for the last month and I'm fresh as a daisy and I think I'm going to go and win this tournament. You've got to have the confidence building at the events before it. So some of those big guys will be less of a threat. You know, Delpo, always a threat. But, you know, even at Wimbledon right now, you take two guys 
and, and and be very comfortable against the rest of the field. That's interesting. So this is uh, Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM. Uh, and if you'd like to call in, if you have a question, you can call in at one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six or email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I'm your host this morning, er- uh, Adi Weiner. I'm with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. And we're interviewing Craig O'Shaughnessy about uh, strategy in tennis. It's very fascinating. I'm going to actually throw in a question that we did get from a listener. Um, it was apropos of what we had earlier, which was um, specifically, why is it that coaching is banned in tennis? It seems to be, it's not banned in any other sport. Um, why, is the, why is that the custom, and, and what do you think uh, is the reason why it continues, and would it make things much different if it ended? Yeah, you know, it's, it's basically the players walk through the gate with their bags and their water and their towel, and as soon as they walk through that gate, to walk out onto the court, it's only them. It is one versus one. And, you know, I guess you have a boxing analogy, but you still have a manager screaming at the at the boxer, you know, as the fight's going on. But, you know, the tradition of tennis is meant to be it's you and the opponent and you don't get any help from the outside and go beat yourself, you know, or, or go and beat the opponent and the two guys go beat, beat each other up. I like that. I really, really like that. And just because, you know, I, I don't think it's a valid argument at all to say, well, other sports do it. So what other sports do it? Other sports are not tennis. And if coaching is great in your sport, whether it's basketball, whether it's football, you know, when you look at American football, you've got the coach so heavily involved or the coaching team so heavily involved calling every single play um, for both players and, and, and both teams. So, you know, I really like that aspect. When you look at the women's tour and they've experimented with this and yeah, it certainly does have an impact, but you know, they, they put the TV camera on there and they put the mic on there. And if you listen to a lot of these exchanges, when the coach goes out there and talks to the player, the, the player's frantic. The, the, the player's upset and, and you know, they're, they're close to tears and it's not a conversation very much revolved around the strategy to defeat the other opponent. It's, you know, the, the conversation is not about the other side of the net. It's just about trying to calm the nerves of the player that you're coaching. So, you know, I, I, I am definitely for it staying as it is. Now, in saying that, I still, as I mentioned at the start, I still recognize that coaches on the side of the court are bending that rule every single day. And it's a gray area. And, you know, I don't know whether it's like college tennis where you, you just allow the coach or whether it's like Davis Cup where you, the coach gets to sit on the side of the court. I don't know the answer. But tennis definitely has a problem because they are coaching at the moment. But it's not a significant enough problem that coaches are getting warnings every single match. So. Well, it's it's a tough one, and I don't know the answer. So, Craig, this is Eric Bradlow again. I want to flip the switch a little bit and talk about the role of let's call it analytics and training in tennis right now. Because uh-huh. you know, in my mind, you know, since I've been watching tennis since the early seventies, um, you know, I think about the greats when I was a child: Borg, you know, McEnroe, Connors, and then a little later in my life, Agassi and Sampras. They they didn't win majors after the age of 30. I think Sampras may have oh, won one. Borg yeah. was certainly done. Connors, the, when he performed Con- at 30, Connors was like performed a, well, but he, I don't think he, he won, won a major right. after it. I know McEnroe didn't. I know Borg did not. Agassi may have won one at 30 or 31, but now we have Djokovic, who's the holder of 
three of the slams. We have Nadal, who's obviously winning the French and others. Federer, of course, is 37. What do you think has led to this change in the sport where essentially in men's tennis, you were done in your late 20s and now the three, yeah. you know, it's still the big three and there's not much change. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, when you look at the daily routine, let, let's say Federer, for example, we'll pick him. He's going to wake up in the morning and have the most nutritious, best breakfast possible. And, and let's compare back to McEnroe on board. It, is the nutrition side elevated and, and, and superior for Roger? Absolutely. There's no question. Then these guys at the elite level of the game making this amount of money can afford to have not only the chef at the tournament, So, and, and again, I think this is just a small part, but the bigger part is to have a full-time trainer, a full-time physio, somebody that's, that's full-time with you working on your body. And, you know, these guys really rely on their body. It's not so much that their mind is breaking down after 30. It's their body is slowing down, breaking down after 30. But when you're able to employ, you know, one or two or three people to just make sure your body is finely tuned and not breaking down and you're getting massages every day and you're getting physio work or osteo work every single day, you can elevate your career. And, you, you know, they're, they're, the guys are playing longer because the body is not breaking down. It is better looked after with the muscles and, and, and the skeleton. It's be better looked after with the nutrition. So I put a lot of weight into the ability to afford in today's game somebody to just focus on you and your body and make sure it's humming like a Ferrari into your mid-30s. So one of the hypotheses that we had conjectured about this longevity increase has to do with the fact that they make so much money now, the top players in particular, as you point out, mm -hmm. but it also allows them to slow down their their tournament play. They don't have to play yeah. that many tournaments because they don't need to make money to keep going because all this is expensive, of course. Um, and exactly. so and so that allows them to preserve their, their, their bodies for future matches. So how much of a role do you think that plays? Oh, I couldn't agree more. That's a huge deal. And when, when Roger came out a couple of years ago and said, you know what, I'm just not going to play the clay court season, everybody went, what is happening here? We've never seen this. So you're mandated um, with your ranking points to play those nine Masters 1000 tournaments. If you don't play them, you get a zero. You can't just skip it and, and avoid the zero. So when Roger did that, it's like, and he did it under the pretense that He's taking care of his body at that time, and he'll be able to um, play longer with his career. The first reaction was, well, he's taking zeros at Monte Carlo. He's taking a zero in Madrid. He's taking a zero in Rome. It's really going to affect the ranking because everybody was so fixated with the ranking. But we saw at the end of the year, he almost finished at number one anyway after skipping those tournaments. So, you know, to become number one in the world... Um, you, you only have to do well at a handful of tournaments. It's only 18 counts. So, you know, you can be, you can go in and have a great, you know, eight to 12 tournaments in a year and become number one and, and not have the wear and tear on your body. So when Roger did that, it made us look at our sport differently. And it made us look at it and say, you know, I, I'm going to take longer to rehab. And I remember when Marinka went out, a lot of guys would come back as quick as they possibly could, but all of a sudden say, no, I'm going to nope. take the rest of the season off. So and I'm going to I'm going to look after my body. What what is the consequence of having a ranking that's sort of mismatched with the actual talent or the probability of winning? 
it just all comes down to seeding and and how early in the event do you run against a top seed? I see. So what? So one through four are spread fairly evenly. So that's a big deal to be one through four. Then five through eight um, is, is the next, and then you know sometimes it doesn't matter whether you're ranked. 15 or 21. Well, Craig, you know, let me ask you a question. Let me, this is Eric Brad. Let me interrupt for just a second. Yeah. Let's imagine Nadal wants to win the French. That's his only goal. He wants to win the French. Would he, I, I, he doesn't care. If he doesn't win, he doesn't care where he comes in. Yeah. Would he rather play Novak in the first round where he's perfectly yeah. fresh? Or would he rather play Novak after six matches in the final? If, if let me just give you my thought. Yeah. If the answer, I don't know what your answer is. I'm, I'm excited to hear it. Let's imagine it's yeah. the first round. Well, then it's not an advantage for him to, and Novak to be one and two because he can't play him. The only guy in his mind maybe that can beat him until the end. Yeah. Um, again, as I talked about earlier, you want to play yourself into form. You want to peak towards the final, just as like when you play Monte Carlo and Rome. And Madrid, you're looking to peak through that period. So I don't think it's a benefit for Rafa to play Novak in the first round. He wants to get some experience and get some confidence and get some matches under his belt so that he's you know, got his game as finely tuned as possible. But for Rafa, it doesn't matter whether he's you know, the one seed or the two seed. That doesn't matter. And, and so... The fact that he's, you know, the, the two seed coming in is is irrelevant. Well, actually, what so Eric has essentially asked whether coming in as the twentieth seed make make a difference, and you're actually you're essentially saying no, it would hurt him. Which leads me actually to another question we got from a listener, yeah. um, which is, what is the role of mental preparation and mental dominance in tennis? We have these players who keep going. I, for I, just the earlier anecdote you talked about, one of the roles of uh, of a, sort of a coach, if you will. Uh, of a player is just to keep them from hurting themselves with their own sort of self-destruction. What is that? What makes what makes it so a Rafa, a Rafa, a Djokovic, a, a Federer? It, and what what is the percentage of that championship year after year due to their mental determination? Yeah, good point. So at the U.S. Open this this year, I was at a um, a fever party before the tournament, and Diego Schwartzman was there. So I walked up to Diego and introduced myself and. And, and said, listen, you know, I, I cover a lot of your matches. You're doing awesome. Um, you know, you won that first set uh, against against Rafa at Roland Garros. She took a set off Rafa. First, and I asked Diego, what was it like? What did you have to do to do a set? But why did you lose? Why did you lose that match? And I asked the same question to Martin Fukovic, who you got a set off um, Novak at um, an early set at the U.S. Open as well. And both guys answered the exact same thing. They said, the level that I have to bring to win that one set is so mentally, and they didn't say physically first, they said it's so mentally draining that after, after focusing so hard and, and, and being in the moment so hard for just a set against Rafa at Roland Garros and against Novak at the US Open, I just ran out of steam. I just had a little bit of a letdown and the guy was on top of me. So a big difference for these players is not the level of the, the physicality of actually hitting the ball or running around. It's the, it's the mental fatigue, that the, 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 the toll that it takes to play these guys. And I had a joke. I was in the, in the, the player um, uh, restaurant last week in Rome, and Demir Zuma was in there and they've got a pool table in there and I was at my computer all day it had a rainy day and I'm at my computer doing strategy work 
with Novak and the Italian Federation who I was working with. And I noticed Demir was uh, playing pool for over three hours. So I saw him the next morning. I'm like, Demir, are you playing pool again? He's like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I go, well, it's really good, really good for your mental game. And he looked at me, he goes, no, it is. He goes, do you know how, it, how much focus it takes to play a game of pool for three hours? He goes, it absolutely helps my mental focus. So I thought that was interesting as well. So, um, Craig, let me ask you, uh, I don't know if it's a final question, but let's imagine, so we're, we're projecting forward now. We're statisticians, and we have a 37, I think, year old Federer, 32-year-old Nadal, 31-year-old Djokovic. They, Federer, obviously, I'm sure you get this question all the time. Federer has 20 majors. Nadal has 17. Djokovic has 15. Mm-hmm. If we're sitting here 10 years from now, I, I was going to say five, but Nadal may be still playing the French. If we're sitting here 10 years from now, <laughs> I, I'm not joking. If we're sitting, and I, I know you know I'm serious. If we're sitting here 10 years from now, who do you think has the most majors? Well, I'm biased. I got a horse in the race here. So, um, you know, but, but, I, but I honestly think it's going to be Novak at the end of the day. I think, I think Novak's longevity, he's the youngest of them all. His game is a little bit more adaptable, you know, to all of the surfaces. You know, Rogers had such a great run. Um, I think it's very difficult now. I and mean, we've said that for a number of years, but, but holy cow, at 37, to go through and, and win, you know, obviously Wimbledon is his chance. Um, you know, if, even if Roger gets to 21, I think Novak, you know, he's won the last three. Uh, the, the work that I do with him, the understanding, and this is something that, that doesn't get talked about a lot. You know, why is Novak so good of all the players that I've worked with and all the, you know, all the players that I study? His ability to absorb a game plan and to absorb the level of data about the opponent, whether it's serving, returning, rallying, approaching, you know, when I when I first started working, I said, Novak, I've got a lot of data on you, on you and a lot of the opponent. I need to filter it for you. You know, what what do you want me to specialize in? He goes, Craig, I don't want to filter. I want to see everything that you I want. I want it all. Absorb. I want I want it all, and he absorbs it all. And you know, his ability to go out and run a game plan, and and for me to sit on the side of the court, and I'm like, I know exactly where he's going to hit the ball, where the where the game plan dictates it. And, and he does it again and again. He doesn't deviate. You know, I put a lot of emphasis on why Novak will be finishing number one in Grand Slams out of those three based on his ability to absorb data and to execute the game plan perfectly. That sounds very interesting and a very wonderful conclusion. Maybe we'll use that to modify our over-unders on just that question as we move <laughs> forward. So, Craig, thank you so much for joining us here at Wharton Moneyball. Um, we've gotten through 